Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And let us pray. Beloved Lord, in the midst of all this worry and fear, will you please meet us and see us? Encourage our feeble hearts even now. Amen. And please be seated. The season of Easter and the Gospel of John are both celebrations of life. And in his attempt to celebrate life, John intentionally mimics the Genesis account of creation. And yet, rather than seven days of creation, which conclude with God resting in Genesis, in John, seven miracles are followed by the resurrected Jesus who meets with and talks to Mary Magdalene in a garden. The imagery of Jesus and Mary in a garden is a picture of new life in a new world that slowly builds in John's gospel miracle by miracle. And so throughout the season of Easter, we're in a sermon series titled New Creations, which is trying to explore the goodness of Jesus' life in this world one miracle at a time. And it's through John's seven miracles that we're offered a window into resurrected life, not someday out there in the future, but resurrected life and living now, here, today. And so miracle number one, water to wine. Miracle number two, healing the dying. Miracle number three, caring for the sick. Last week, miracle number four, bread from heaven. And this morning, miracle number five, walking on water. How many of you have ever had a repetitive nightmare, right? Like, it, like if you have a nightmare, you know which one it's going to be, and it just happens again and again and again, night after night after night, or at least, you know, once a week or once a month. As a child, I had a repetitive nightmare. My favorite hero in the world was Superman, and my Grammy made me a Superman cape. And I wore that cape like underwear. I mean, I loved my Superman cape. I would run around the house, and sometimes when I ran, if I would run really fast and jump, I kind of felt for a moment, just a moment, like that cape was helping me to fly. Enter repetitive nightmare. I'm running, I'm being chased, I'm in my cape, and there's always a cliff ahead. And I've got to get running fast enough so that by the time I get to the cliff, I can actually fly. So I jump, I jump, I run, I jump, I get to the cliff, and I open my eyes. That was my repetitive nightmare. Over and over and over again. Can I run fast enough so that I can fly and not die? Now, as I moved from childhood, that went away. I actually lived for quite a while without having any kind of repetitive nightmare. And then for the last 20 years, I've had a pearl nightmare. (laughs) It usually happens on Saturday night. In my dream, I've woken up. It's time, like actually time to be in my car heading to Pearl Church. And I find that I haven't written my sermon. 
And so I'm just scrambling, like in my dream, like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I'm going to call Ben and tell him I'm sick. It's all yours, Ben. Like, <laughs> what, what am I going to do? And then I open my eyes and I realize my sermon is done, usually. No, I'm kidding. My sermon is done. I get to go and everything is going to be just fine. But it's not just nightmares, is it? Like, there's something about the night itself which can just be troubling, unsettling. There's a great poem by uh, the German author and poet Hermann Hesse. It's titled Uneasiness in the Night, which I think gets at this experience that we all have. The clock speaks uneasily with the spiderweb on the wall. The wind tears at the shutters. My flickering candles are utterly dripped away and burned down. No more wine in the glass. Shadows in every corner whose long fingers stretch out toward me. Just as in childhood, I close my eyes and breathe heavily. Uneasiness clutches me, cowering. But no, no mother comes anymore. So friendly, she charmed the horrifying world away from me and brightened me with comfort. I stay a long time cowering in the darkness. Hear the wind in the roof and crackling death in the walls. Hear sand running behind the wallpaper. Hear death spinning with his cold fingers. I force my eyes open. I want to look and to grasp, look into the emptiness and hear him far off, whistling lightly out of his mocking lips. I edge into bed. I wish I could sleep, but sleep has turned into a frightened bird. Have you ever felt that in the middle of the night? Does this experience resonate with anyone? These nighttime moments when our fears, our anxieties, our worries, our wonderings about our lives in this world, during which all feels bleak, it overwhelms, it consumes, and perhaps at times even submerges us into what feels like an eternal despair and hopelessness. Over the last two years, this experience has become more pronounced for me. Not so much nightmares, but these nighttime moments during which I'm wide awake. I mean, I want to be sleeping, but I'm not. I want my mind to be at peace, but it's not. I feel concerned for Jen and for our kids and for our friends and for this church and for our world, and it becomes so real, so visceral that I found myself at times trembling in my bed. Just wide awake, feeling, thinking, and believing the very worst. From this morning's gospel reading, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and then they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. As short as this story is, it's, it's surprisingly full of detail. It's dark. The disciples are rowing across the sea. The sea in biblical literature is always a place of danger and chaos. There is a strong wind blowing, and this, this peculiar little story tells us that they were three to four miles out. Now, if you were around in Jesus' time, you would know that three to four miles out, that would be about halfway across the sea that they were traveling. So they were in the middle, the bowels of the sea. 
dark, alone, no Jesus, roaming across water when suddenly in the very middle of this sea, a strong wind begins to blow while what appears to be some kind of being is visibly seen walking toward them on the water. Sounds kind of like the beginning of a horror film, right? And it's probably not too much of a stretch to notice that this is what most nighttime uneasiness usually feels like. It feels like the beginning of a personalized horror film. I mean, in my experience of nighttime uneasiness, I'm not expecting anything good. I'm not. I mean, goodness feels so far from all that I'm holding inside of my body. In fact, my experience usually feels like the opposite of anything good during which the worst, the worst for Jen, the worst for our kids, the worst, worst for our city and our church and our world become ever more bleak. And so I imagine that the disciples were terribly freaked out, very likely expecting the worst. And, and I don't think that this is an imaginative stretch because the word used to describe the disciples' trepidation finds its root in the Greek word phobeo, from which we get the word phobia. That's freaked out. The disciples are deeply, perhaps even pervasively afraid. And there is no way out, no hope. They're in the very middle of the sea. There is no sliver of light. And yet, as the story goes, Jesus approaches the boat and speaks these words. It is, I do not be afraid. We're then told that the disciples take Jesus into the boat and abruptly the story concludes with these words. And immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The end. The end. And so in your nighttime uneasiness, let Jesus into your boat of fear, whatever that means, and you'll soon find land. See you next week. (laughs) What does this story even mean? It's so peculiar. Well, many scholars use this story to make a literary point about the Gospel of John, which is this. Jesus is a prophet, very much like the great prophets found throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's how this literary idea plays out. In last week's passage, which was the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the masses in the wilderness, and then people begin to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, when we think of people finding bread in the wilderness because of a prophet, right, our minds immediately go to the great prophet Moses, who, with the help of, God's, of God, rained down manna from the heavens. Okay, so that was the beginning of John chapter 6. Now we're into the middle of John chapter 6. We have Jesus walking on water, which many scholars know is very much like Moses parting the Red Sea in order to rescue Israel from Egypt. And so you see Jesus is like the prophet Moses, which is an important point that John is making in his gospel. But to be clear, it's, it's probably better to say that John's point isn't simply that Jesus is like the prophet Moses, but rather that Jesus is even more powerful than Moses. I mean, in the story of Moses, it's God who uses Moses to rain down manna and to part the sea. But in John's tellings, in chapter 6, Jesus is single-handedly making bread manifest and single-handedly walking across dangerous waters and bringing calm. And so here is a person providing food for hungry people in the wilderness and controlling the uncontrollable creation. John's point is really clear. Jesus is the new and improved Moses. 
So who is this word made flesh that John is introducing us to? Well, let's watch him and listen to him and even consider perhaps following him because he is something even more significant than the great prophet Moses. And as important as this theological point may be, I think there's an even more important experiential point for us to ponder. In the Christian tradition, the experience of uneasiness in the night, it has a name, which is the dark night of the soul. Have you heard of this before, the dark night of the soul? 16th century Spanish mystic St. John of the Cross wrote about the dark night of the soul. The author, the unknown author of The Cloud of the Unknowing wrote about the dark night of the soul. Even Mother Teresa wrote about this terribly excruciating dark night experience. But to be clear, in most cases, the dark night of the soul is about something more than just having a real rough night. According to some of the mystical writings, it's these dark nights of the soul that invite us into an experiential journey with God that moves us into union with the divine. For example, in St. John of the Cross's writing, his long poem contains two parts. In the first part, the dark night of the soul is said to purge the senses. And then in the second part, the dark night of the soul is said to purge the spirit. This thinking rose out of Greek thought, Thomas Aquinas in particular, who wrote about these 10 steps of a ladder that move us up toward mystical love. And according to this Greek thought, our senses and our spirits are in need of purgation. In other words, our senses and our spirits are so unholy, perhaps even so ungodly, that the human work is to purge our senses and our spirits from a worldliness to a holiness that results in divine union. Now, applying this thinking to our dark night of the soul moments, this is troubling for me. Because according to this way of thinking, the cause of our middle-of-the-night hellish experiences is ourselves. Oh, can't sleep? Oh, having nightmares? Oh, feeling worried or anxious or excruciating concern? Yeah, that's happening because your senses and your soul need to be purged. (laughs) Perhaps even worse, these moments are proof that you're the problem. Your senses and soul need purging, and so these dark nights are occurring as an opportunity for you to become less ungodly and more deeply godly. And so perhaps over time, our middle-of-the-night hellish experiences may function to purify our lives, ultimately bearing the fruit of our union with God. And lastly, our middle-of-the-night hellish experiences may actually be a gift from God who allows us to suffer so that our purgation may result in holy union. Raise your hand if this feels like good news. (laughs) Question, why am I experiencing these dark nights of the soul? Answer, because I am ungodly and am in need of being made holy. Question, who is causing these dark nights of the soul? Answer, It is God who through your nightmare suffering will purge you and draw you to God's own self. Again, raise your hand if this feels like good news. For me, this isn't good news. It it actually feels like really, really bad news. And besides, as effective as fear and fright and worry may be at getting people to behave better, sociology and psychology have been abundantly clear that fear and fright don't actually produce better human beings. I mean, they might modify behavior for a short amount of time, but but it fades quickly, and its impact on the soul is hard. And so perhaps there's something different, something more helpful that we can consider in regard to this story. 
Uh, to do that, I'd like to try and make some connections to John's fifth miracle by teasing out a couple thoughts. Uh, here's a first thought. This story says nothing about the disciples needing to have their senses and souls purged. That's just nowhere in this story. In fact, if we, if we come out, zoom out a bit and just look at the Gospels in their entirety, uh, the disciples are often revealed as being stubborn and slow to see, but they're never described as being inherently wicked and in need of purging. Which, which brings me to a second thought. The disciples throughout the Gospels are consistently revealed as being simply, merely, wonderfully, maybe terrifyingly, human. They're just being human. Yes, of course, being stubborn and slow to see isn't wicked. It's human. Especially when we're talking about something as radical as following after a Messiah who is trying to turn the whole world and its ways upside down with a new kind of kingdom in which every person, especially the most different, belongs. Following after a Messiah who is turning the world's ways upside down, beginning to trust in a revolutionary gospel that subverts empire gospel, resting into a perception of divinity who is not aloof and far off, but present and near, that takes time to soak into your bones. It takes time to see and to believe. And I think that's what makes this morning's story so astonishing. Nothing is said about the disciples needing purging. Rather, they seem to be having a very normal, very terrible, dark night of the soul moment. And how does the story conclude? Well, Jesus walks to the disciples in their phobias across that chaotic sea and declares, it is I do not be afraid. I think there are a couple really beautiful ways to think about this story. One way is to wake to the possibility that our dark nights of the soul are not, not a result of the divine attempting to purge us through fear as if our terror and worry is our fault. Much the opposite, in fact. In this story, Jesus pursues the disciples and he encourages them to not be afraid. More so, in this story, Jesus shows pursuit of, attention toward, and presence with the disciples in the midst of their terror. You see, it's Jesus who moves toward them. I've told this story before, but it's been profound for me in my life uh, growing up. Many of you know I have two brothers and six sisters. Seven were adopted. And besides my, my, all of my siblings, throughout my childhood and growing up years, my parents often had um, foster children in and out of the house, in and out of the house. And we would sometimes have some children, three, four, five, six years old, who had endured so much trauma that they would have these manifestations that were known as night terrors. They would just wiggle and move and scream and their eyes would sometimes be open and sometimes be closed but but there was nothing that we could do to comfort them it was almost as if it had to just play out before they would wake to this world that they were actually living in because the trauma that they bore was so deep inside of them and so my mom was talking to one of the uh, social workers and the social worker said to her you know next time this happens Right? Instead of just going to them or touching them or just holding them on your lap, why don't you just get a big bear hug around them, get their arms tucked in, and hold them as tightly as you can, as if, as if you're holding them in a cocoon. You just hold them as tightly as you can. Obviously, you're not squeezing them to death, but just hold them to know that, that, that in the midst of their thrashing, they're being held. 
And almost every time, just after a couple minutes, that thrashing would turn to a moaning, would turn to a whimper, would turn to sleep. Over and over and over again, children in and out of the house, that rapping did something to them. And it makes me wonder, what if this is more akin to what may be happening in our moments of terror? Like, what if we're not to blame for our dark nights? And what if God's not hurting us in order to purge us? And what if we're just humans full of phobias and traumas and triggers that always feel heightened at night as if we're floating in the middle of a sea? And what if in these moments the terror of terror, the divine is actually forging ways to us and for us, wrapping us in divine arms and rocking us, whispering into our frightened souls, I'm here. You're not alone. I'm in very much in this terror with you. Well, that would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? And here's a second and final thought. It's a bit wild, but I think this wild story gives us permission to think wildly. The story reads, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, notice when it is in this story that the disciples grow afraid. It's not when the strong wind began to blow. In fact, the way the story reads, it appears that the wind starts raging, and then in the midst of that wind, the disciples continue rowing. They just keep rowing until they're in the very middle of the sea, the very middle of their journey, and then then at the center of their journey, they see something or someone walking on the sea coming toward them. And it's not until this point in the story, at that very moment, that the story tells us the disciples became afraid. And so, at least in this story, the thing that they're afraid of is actually Jesus coming toward them. Of course, they didn't know it was Jesus. They really thought it was something that put their lives in danger. And this makes me want to wonder... What if our fears and phobias, our worries and our anxieties are somehow mystically interconnected with divinity? To be clear, I'm not saying that God is the cause of our dark nights. We've already thought about this, and it's, it's not a helpful thought. Rather, what I'm trying to get at is, what if that which we fear in the middle of the night, that, that is slowly, minute by minute, coming closer and closer to us? What if it's not just our fear or phobia or worry or anxiety, but what if it is actually the divine approaching us in our fears and phobias and worries and anxieties? Well, if that were the case, then perhaps we might be a tiny bit less afraid. And maybe even a tiny bit more hopeful that there may actually be a sliver of divine light in whatever our moment of darkness is. Or perhaps if this were the case, we'd be able to hope that our darkness might be a kind of divine teacher with something for us to learn. For I think often phobias and fears and traumas feel so distant from God. But what if God is actually in those with us? That would mean that maybe there's something even in these dark moments that might have something to teach us if we open ourselves to them as opposed to close ourselves to them. Or perhaps we'd be more capable of trying to rest in God who is more deeply intertwined with our dark nights than we can possibly fathom. 
And perhaps a perspective like this is what resurrected living may look like in the midst of our lives, which are gloriously and terrifyingly human. The divine with us and for us, pursuing us even in our terror, possibly even within, within our terror, whispering over and over and over, it is I do not be afraid. And suddenly, even that which we fear becomes intertwined with a divine love, a divine light that holds us and all that is possible for us. Let us pray. Beloved Lord, in the midst of all this worry and fear, meet us and see us. Help us to possibly even meet and see you and that which terrifies us. Encourage our feeble hearts even now during these disturbing days. We ask in Christ's name. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Mm-hmm.